This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Hard Anodized Sprockets, up to 66% lighter than steel sprockets. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. And for our first MotoGP show of 2023, it's with a heavy heart that the Paddock Pass podcast team assembles, given the news that friend of ours, Andrew Wheeler, passed away over the course of the last couple of weeks. Myself, Steve English, David Amott, Adam Wheeler and Neil Morrison all knew Andrew very well. And uh, certainly we've lots of fond memories of our time in the media center with Andrew. There was always, well, there was good times and bad times with Andrew. He's a very unique character. And David, I have to say, I thought that your piece on motomatters.com was actually very reflective of the man because all of us shared lots of laughs with Andrew over the years. We also shared a lot of times where we were frustrated with Andrew as well. And I think you captured the essence of Andrew very well in your piece. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, like Andrew was very much himself. And uh, the thing about people who are very much themselves is they are always really um, memorable, interesting, um, fun, unique, but also they can be a right pain in the ass. And that was absolutely what Andrew was. Uh, I mean, you, we all used to joke about, because Andrew, you would always sort of brag about never having jet lag and then um, uh, promptly fall asleep at uh, uh, his laptop sort of thing at the most bizarre times. I think, it, uh, I, in a way, I almost admired, you know, the, the, the way that he could sort of like just drop off for 20 minutes and then sort of like wake up and then get back to work again. And it was, um, it was that the, the only time that was really frustrating was when we were waiting for him to, uh, to cook us dinner and, um, uh, we'd end up uh, sort of, you know, waiting until about, uh, about midnight and then he'd serve us. I mean, the, the food was fantastic. He was a genuinely superb cook. Um, but it would have been nice to have it at eight o'clock rather than midnight. Yeah, I did always run out of patience actually around the dinner table whenever it was taking so long to be cooked and I was happy enough with beans on toast. But uh, <laughs> Neil, obviously whenever you came into the MotoGP Media Centre, you were in our group. Andrew was a big part of that at that point. And it does make it a lot easier whenever you come into the paddock and there's a lot of people there for you to, to be around. I know for myself and for David, that was actually quite important with Andrew right from when we started in our MotoGP careers. Yeah, exactly. I think Andrew was pretty well established by the time I came into the MotoGP paddock in 2015. He was known as one of the top photographers at that time and for good reason because he was uh, really, really talented at what he did um, around that era of, you know, 2011, 12 through to, um, you know, I guess some of the, the more recent years, you know, you looked at Andrew's photos and thought like they were kind of the, the benchmark of what photography could be in, in MotoGP. Um, and yeah, I found like a guy that was pretty welcoming, um, pretty open, as you said, Div, unique and definitely very eccentric, um, but always um, someone you could count on to be laughing and cracking jokes in the media center and trying to make it a, a kind of a, a jovial place to be. Um, so yeah, good memories of Andrew, obviously a fantastic cook as well. I had the, the pleasure of spending a few uh, weekends um, in the same accommodation as him when we had rented a house together with, I think you were there, Dave, and maybe Steve, you were there on occasion too. Um, yeah, and the, the kind of feast, uh, the, the, the feast that you put together were Slightly late, but um, certainly pretty exemplary in terms of quality. So, um, yeah, he had been in poor health for some time. We saw him, um, I think, at Kota in 2021. It was clear that he wasn't in great health. Um, but, yeah, still very sad news to, to hear that he passed away um, at the start of last week. 
And Adam, I'm going to ask you a question as well, because how frustrating is it for David to constantly be uh, called Gavin Emmett and you for constantly being called Andrew Wheeler over the years? Yeah, I mean, as Neil kind of mentioned, Steve, it's probably the saddest way to end up not being confused with somebody else. Uh, so it's uh, um, Andrew, for me, was, uh, like Neil mentioned, a fantastic photographer uh, in the last few years, dropped away from the sport, had, you know, some personal and professional troubles. Um, you know, he kept us all informed, really, of what was going on. Uh, but I'll just remember him for his sense of humour. I mean, he was a, a man. How can you not like somebody who always laughs very easily? Uh, and that was pretty much uh, Andrew's um, spirit, if you like. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in a way, in a way, he'll be missed. It's, um, you know, from as much for his personality as is for his photography. Well, you know, with full respect to Andrew, could we not talk about the, the impending demise of any more wheelers on this podcast? It'd be nice <laughs> to be able to talk about something else, preferably some motorbikes. Well, we, we'll, get to, we'll get to the motorbikes in just a moment, but it was important for all of us to be able to give, give our reflection on, on Andrew as well. But uh, Adam, how was it over the last few weeks for you? Um, it's probably from having to write about too many motorcycles, to be honest, Steve. I had to do text for at least 11 new CF moto bikes coming out of China. So it's been a busy old holiday period. But um, no, I mean, resolutions, uh, there's not been that much news floating around. I'm sure we'll tackle a couple of the subjects here on, on the pod. But uh, no, yeah, no, I mean, running, why not? keep some exercise. I was partly inspired by the England football team's fine performances until they got to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. So that was it. And moving swiftly onwards. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. We'll move straight away from that. Ad. I, I wouldn't want to, to gloat this late after the event. But Neil, over the course of the last few weeks, were you able to get that smile off your face given the demise of the English national <laughs> team? Or was uh, Liverpool's struggles over the Christmas period enough to bring on. it back to earth? It's something like I moved on, on from you. Actually, I'm a liar. Maybe my New Year's resolution will be to to be more magnanimous in the in the in the defeats that England suffer. Ad. Yeah, it could be to move on from the petty bickering, but then where's the fun in that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, what about you, though, Neil? How was how was Christmas? Christmas was good, Steve. Yeah, it was nice. I uh, had a few weeks back in Northern Ireland. I had a, a week over in France as well uh, with the uh, other half and her family. So it was it was very pleasant, and it was interesting eating uh, foie gras instead of turkey on Christmas Day. I must say, it was a bit of a shock to the system, but um, a lovely time was had by uh, by all. So yeah, feeling well refreshed and ready to go again. David, obviously, you enjoyed the Christmas period. What with you being filled with festive cheer, as everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yes, uh, yeah. No, I mean it was it was quite nice because uh, I was actually uh, home for Christmas, so there was just me and my wife, which was fantastic. And then I went over to see uh, my mum and my brother and his family, um, uh, and it was all a lot less. Uh, um, it was all a lot less hectic. It was. It was. Much better than being in the UK for Christmas, where it's you know like Christmas is almost a national sport. What is a uh, Dutch for humbug, Dave? Uh, that's a very good question, and I will have to think about it. It's um, anyway, it'll definitely be bar anyway. So um, <laughs> we'll have some of that. Did you manage to go anywhere over Christmas, or did you actually stay at home? Um, I went to the golf course quite a few times at Christmas. That was quite good. Um, I didn't go anywhere this year. It was it was quite nice actually, just to have a couple of weeks at home, take it nice and easy. My sister had a little baby boy this week as well, so that was obviously one of the big things in the run up to Christmas for all of us, just getting ready for that and uh, 
making sure that she was going to be well looked after for that. So that was that was the highlight of Christmas for me, for sure. And uh, it was obviously a bit of run and done in the aftermath as well, Ed. But uh, mine wasn't because of having so much work commitments and needing a clean head. It was mostly just because I put on a lot of weight over Christmas with <laughs> far too much turkey, far too much ham. I'm still working my way through the chocolates at this stage, but it would just be a waste for them to sit there. So I need to make sure that they're all gone soon. No, well, I mean, one of the reasons I dislike Christmas is because my father always insisted on buying the biggest turkey he could possibly get his hands on. Um, so, you know, something sort of in the order of about 300 kilos. And we would be eating turkey through, I mean, literally, I think we'd still be having like turkey curry and turkey sandwiches into about like April or, 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 or May. It was just, there was so much turkey that you just couldn't cope with it anymore. Are your reasons for being a pescatarian, they've uh, revealed themselves? Well, yes. <laughs> one of the reasons, yes, absolutely. I have to say, one of the most exciting things for me over Christmas was I had to do the turkey and ham dinner on the barbecue this year. And um, <laughs> it was it was great just to be able to prove that it could be done to the family. And no one got food poisoning. And it was very successful. So I'm expecting that next year there'll be a demand for it to be done on the barbecue. So... As we're recording this, I'm currently in Austria um, helping out Red Bull KTM for their 2023 team launch by doing some interviews and stuff with the management and the riders. Am I the first Muggins to be traveling for MotoGP work this year? Or has somebody else uh, ventured out for some test or some other event? I am the first Muggins. No, you are definitely the first Muggins. Yeah, but you're also the first of the three of the four of us that's getting paid for something this year, Ad. So that's certainly a good enough reason to get on a plane, I think. Yeah, January is usually a tough month. So, um, yeah, I'll take the extra helpings of Strudel at this time. It's it's quite a quiet month as well, usually. But uh, there's been a fair bit of news and uh, talk during the rounds over the course of the last couple of days. And um, one of the, the big things is obviously the Kazakhstani track. There was a, a new video out of that track. Neil, what did you think of what you saw on that? Uh, I mean, in terms of the track layout, it doesn't really look like a, something that interesting, if I'm being that honest. Um, I mean, yeah, you, you sometimes hope to see something a bit uh, innovative or, or different, but this track just looked, uh, well, I mean, the, the layout that we saw was fairly basic. Um, we didn't really see anything that interesting. It looked a bit like the layout of Estoril, which maybe isn't one of the more exciting tracks that we've seen. Um, but you Did know, have the best race in the World Superbikes last year, though, in fairness to Estoril. That is true. 2006 and all that. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say that, um, well, you know, it couldn't be any worse than the Kimi Ring, which, um, you know, RIP. Um, but it doesn't look like it's going to be something that will be uh, lighting the rider's eyes up. But, you know, I could be wrong. Anyway, exciting to, to have the prospect of going to somewhere um, different like Kazakhstan this year, for sure. Yeah, and uh, David, there was some other news as well. It looks like um, for Honda, some big changes technically for this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was uh, tipped off that uh, um, Ken Kawauchi, who's the who was with Suzuki, uh, oh, basically for years. Um, was uh, cited at HRC. So it's going to be interesting to see. Th there's been no announcement. And when I asked HRC about it, they said, you know, we 
they didn't know anything about it. They didn't have any comment on it at the, at the moment. So we'll have to wait and see what, uh, what happens. But I mean, there's, uh, um, everyone from Suzuki seems to be finding, or almost everyone in Suzuki seems to be finding their way into sort of, um, you know, places. Tom O'Kane has got has gone to Yamaha, for example. I think that's going to be really important for them because he uh, he was a, a very big part of making the uh, Suzuki competitive. Um, yeah, it, it, it's going to be interesting. I do like the fact that Honda, for a change, decided to offer no comment to a journalist's request. Um, Adam, though, just looking at the changes there for Honda, if Koachi does come in, that obviously means that Rins, Mir... And the uh, the technical leader for Suzuki all make their way to Honda for 2023. That's obviously going to be a, a big factor for both of the riders as well, that they'll have someone there that they know, but also technically there's someone there that knows those riders as well and what they need. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're speculating, of course, Steve, how much he's going to be integrated into the HRC and specifically the MotoGP racing program. I mean, I put in a ver- I don't want to be too glib about it, but it seems that Japanese culture um, for employees generally seems to be long-term uh, stability or alliance with one company, and then those particular staff get moved around. I mean, I don't think it's beyond the realms of um, credibility that somebody working on MotoGP motorcycles one year, five years later, can be working on you know some something like a, a jet ski project or another kind of engine concept within the company. So I think you know for somebody as prominent as uh, Kawuchi San to be moving, you know not only perhaps departments but also to another company entirely is, is quite rare. Um, mm. You know for somebody of his uh, his status, I mean he was quite visual inside MotoGP. So uh, yeah, it's unusual. But then like Dave, um, you know pointed out in numerous podcasts last year, you know Honda seems to be taking more of a um, an open or a you know a more open-minded approach to their racing project, uh, as we saw with the the alliance or the experimentation with Calex. So who knows? Yeah, one thing: um, uh, Kawauchi may be arriving, uh, but uh, Takeo Yokoyama. There's been lots of rumours about uh, about Takeo, um, you know, leaving, being out of HRC. Uh, but Takeo is uh, is still, as far as I understand, it's still in HRC. Um, uh, you know, he's he's been sort of seen seen working at HRC. So it doesn't look like he is out yet. And and you're right; it is it is extremely unusual for Japanese engineers to to move factories they do get moved around on projects there was a Yamaha engineer who uh, I think he was um, working on the Yamaha in you know Rossi's sort of heyday I think 2000 from around 2006 through to 2008 2009 uh, and then he got moved off and he was involved in the three-wheeler project that became well first of all the Tricity scooter and then that became uh, the Nikken uh, project so um, yeah and then he came back in i think well maybe two years ago he came he was came back in again as a consultant on the uh, on the chassis and now he seems to have disappeared so this uh, it's extremely unusual for for people to actually switch factories but it's it's very uh, usual for japanese engineers to, to move around inside of factories yeah and we know obviously that the situation in honda is is pretty grave or certainly at the end of last year it was pretty grave i was looking through some numbers of last season i think the average first honda uh, finished uh, 14 seconds off the race winner in 2022, which is uh, a pretty desperate situation for a factory of that standing. Um, if we look at the four races that Mark Marquez completed 
since he returned from injury at the end of last year he finished on average 6.3 seconds off um, and I think more worrying were the performances of Sepang where he was 14 seconds back of the race winner and then Valencia a track that he would usually call his own but he crashed out off um, trying to keep up with the leaders at the end of that race so um, yeah Mark certainly didn't mince his words by all accounts at the preseason test at Valencia he made it absolutely certain that he didn't think what Honda brought to that was good enough um, and you would have to say that um, yeah Christmas was cancelled pretty much uh, over at the factory um, they really have to be doing everything they possibly can to yeah, to bring him a bike that is uh, significantly improved by the time we get to Sepang in February. Just uh, for us, before we finish this part of the pod, just to have uh, something to look forward to the new season as well. I want each of your predictions on who's going to win the MotoGP World Championship as we stand right now. Just a one word answer, Dave. Who's going to win it? Um, do you know what? I will go for Mark Marquez just, for, just to be contrary. I mean, I don't think he is because I don't think the bike's going to be there, but um, I, I think he's fit enough again. And if the bike is sort of, you know, about even 70% there, uh, he will be able to do enough. I'm very impressed, Adam, by David's one-word answer, proving why he's an, an internet journalist, <laughs> of uh, then making that into 100 words. But uh, what about you? Who's going to win the World Championship this year? Bagnaya. Okay. And Neil? Uh, Bagnaia was my first choice Quartararo is my second so I'll say Quartararo Okay, well Adam I, I'm going to give you the chance to expand on how Peko is going to defend his championship Well what's your vote first Steve? You can't just spring a question on, like, on us like that you know there was no preamble before we started recording about a question of that magnitude. Superbike, who's going to be the superbike champion? Yeah. Uh, I mean we'll let you off the motor. Top but Rack <laughs> Top Rack, there you go <laughs> like, I was going to say I was going to say Top Rack's going to win the world championship anyway because that's the, the important world championship for me <laughs> Yeah that's um, a nice uh, in, in MotoGP, Steve, that's a nice lead into I, our interview with Jonathan Ray coming up <laughs> that, is, that is true yes um, we're going to have Johnny on the show in a couple of weeks time just as actually one of the the panellists on the show so we'll be able to pick Johnny's brains about MotoGP Supercross and uh, obviously the Superbike World Championship as well in MotoGP I'm going to go with Bastianini as my world champion as well and uh, that's just that we've all got some skin in the game now four different guys so uh, that's that's that, that's who I'm going with that Steve one more piece of news we should maybe mention is um, uh, Dorna CCO Manuel Arroyo um, a guy who's been pretty much pulling the strings you know for, for the promoters for the better part of almost 40 years um, is kind of stepping aside um, it's one of those people who you know you don't see so much of um, you wouldn't probably identify him as one of the main kind of shape shifters in MotoGP, but he has been very influential in how Dorna have built their whole TV package, um, you know, how they, they've become one of the world leaders in, you know, OTT content, um, you know, when it comes to the coverage of the sport. So the fact that Manila Royal, um, you know, one of the guys who was there from almost the beginning uh, with Dorna Sports has kind of stepped into a consultancy role. Um, that's also interesting for how the sport might look in the next couple of years, um, certainly for the for the mid to, to long term. 
Yeah, uh, CCO, Chief Commercial Officer, just in case anyone uh, doesn't know. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, my understanding was always that Manel was really important at uh, in the sh- in the creating the TV deals, in shaping the TV packages, that sort of thing. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see the effect that has in the future. It's possibly also a good time for him to be um, sort of stepping back in the way that, that you know we're in the middle of this change in media and the way that you know the that sport is being covered we're moving more you know you're seeing sports like uh, sports like nfl and football going on to uh, streaming services like netflix and um uh, amazon prime and all the rest of it so it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to see who takes over from him and what direction they send uh, the, the you know the, they send MotoGP so yeah I, it is I, I think it's going to be it's one of those um, background insider moves that no one really cares about but he's actually going to have a really massive impact on the sport in five to ten years yeah I agree with you there Dave and I really hope that Dorna take a move whereby they would consider outside influence or outside expertise um, the easiest move would be to use somebody else within Manel's department with a lot of experience or perhaps to promote somebody who's on the ladder so to speak um, I think Manel even has um, his son Alex who was one of the people um, involved in the MotoGP Unlimited Amazon um, Prime series attempts so you know I think it would be quite typical Dorna really to look within um, for any kind of replacement or for somebody to take over that development part role but uh, it would be good if they would consider somebody from from an external sport or from you know perhaps a different sphere of, of the industry. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Obviously, we've got a lot still to cover on today's show. In the second half of the show, what we're going to do is we're actually going to just focus on a single topic and uh, just let us all get something off of our chest. So when we come back after the break, we're going to talk about team launches in MotoGP. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. And uh, as uh, discussed in the end of part one, we're going to talk now about one of the big topics of the off-season. Team launches are always something that everyone looks forward to. You're always excited to see the new color schemes on a bike. You're always excited to hear riders talk about the fact that they're ready for the new season. Everything's going to be positive. I seem to remember a certain Honda rider last year saying that it was the best bike he'd ever ridden and he was really looking forward to uh, the coming season and uh, for some reason he's now on a gas gas. But um, (laughs) this period of time is all about optimism and uh, I think it's also a time where a little bit of realism is important, Ad. So what's your thoughts on the actual process of a team launch for the season? Well, I'm actually here sort of taking part in one, Steve. So I can see the amount of effort and kind of budget it goes into doing one. And, and you know, Rebel KTM, I think they'll be launching these assets towards the end of January. Um, and it's, I think people are really caught or brands or companies, you know, teams, whatever, are caught in this gap between do we do anything 
Um, if we do do something, do we make it worthwhile? And there's a real question of value around these events. Um, there's a B2C, you know, a business to customer and a B2B, a business to business purpose behind these things. Um, I, I'm somebody, I, I really believe in them. I think they have a representative and symbolic value. Um, of course, the fans like to see the new colors or, you know, the. let's be honest, the interviews and the quotes are usually very full of platitudes and very not committal. It's unusual for a rider or a team manager to say anything pretty outlandish on the eve of a new season. But, um, you know, I, I think people do like to see the visual side of it. And it always surprises me when you have Let's take Monster Energy Yamaha, for example, um, you know, a team that doesn't do anything a little bit more adventurous um, to, to launch their new racing campaign, particularly when they have new riders or new machinery. And they're backed by one of the most visually kind of extravagant uh, lifestyle brands that there is, um, you know, one of the biggest selling energy drinks in the U.S., you know, it puzzles me why for this year they just do a perfunctory launch with Yamaha Indonesia and then offer interview opportunities around the Sepang test. So I don't quite understand that, uh, you know, but whereas, you know, we can talk about, I'm sure about in a moment, that um, Ducati in the unique position of having MotoGP and World Superbike Championship winning teams are now putting on quite an event, you know, in the north of Italy uh, where they used to do their room launch uh, together with the Ferrari F1 team, um, heavily backed by Philip Morris, of course, in the past. Uh, something that evaporated and didn't really happen um, for a number of years. That's now occurring again. And I think Dave, Neil, and myself are going to be there. So we hope to do a podcast from that particular event. But I, I think they're really worth doing. Um, if you not, if you think, well, you know, we're not going to get much fan reaction to it, but then think of the sponsors or the companies that are involved with MotoGP that want to get enthusiastic about it, then, then do it for that. I guess if you have to measure it in return, then maybe there is not enough to justify a huge budget. But I still think it's a worthwhile event. The business to business side is the interesting part of that as well, Ad, because I think gone are the days where you typically had a big glitzy launch. And this could be MotoGP, Formula One, almost any sport. They used to have it where, you know, you'd take a big space, fill it with a crowd and put on a show you know you could have a concert you could have the car the bike being launched and then you'd have all your media requests afterwards the business to business side of it's taken on a bigger role and a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that all of these teams are now so heavily manufacturer funded and supported that it's not about trying to find that one person that's going to give you or that one company that's going to give you five million euro to fund an independent team MotoGP so much of the money comes from uh, a tight net of manufacturer related companies so the business to business side probably has taken on more of a role compared to what we would have had in the past yeah i mean this is the reason that the um that the yamaha launches in indonesia because they use that to get all of their indonesia obviously indonesia is a massive market and a really really important market for them uh, the whole uh, southeast asian thing uh, i've been at a yamaha launch before which was i think it was their entire motorsports uh, launch um, maybe 2018, 17, 18, something like that. I forget exactly. Um, but that was actually at Sepang, uh, at the, I think actually at, at the Sama Sama Hotel in a big hall. Um, and they had people from all over Asia there, mostly, uh, their dealer network and all that sort of thing to try and, to try and, you know, 
them give them something to help them sell you know also give some kind of motivation to to, to help them sell into uh, in, into that really important southeast asian market but don't forget also that the the launch i guess you could say is a bit of a, an old-fashioned concept because it used to be the time when like brands or manufacturers or companies would show off their products for the first time uh, for a maximum media dissemination to the fans or to you know the consumers um that's not needed anymore i mean people can do their own social media campaigns they can whip up their own content you don't need to invite a single journalist or a photographer to these events to reach a certain quota of people that would be interested in your product i mean it all it all can be done in house it doesn't need you know to have 50 to 60 people invited from around the world at considerable cost so the whole thing is kind of changing a little bit now but um i i still like the the fact that you can get to these events, have some sort of interaction and maybe create something that some marketing person uh, with full respect uh, sitting at a desk in an office maybe hasn't considered. Yeah, I think also you can't underestimate the impact that COVID had because the, um, that forced everything online and it forced a lot of people to reconsider their entire marketing uh, approach. And people sort of learned how to do launches online. And now uh, I think we're going back to like more of a hybrid situation where there are more in-person uh, launches, but the, the, still, but the the online element, you know, the fact that you can speak directly to, uh, you know, directly to fans is really, really important. I think uh, I think that makes a huge. I think that makes a huge difference. Neil, just looking at uh, the cost of going to one of the launches, like if you look at a launch from the perspective of does a manufacturer get a return on their investment in the event? And does a journalist get a return on their investment as well? I mean, it depends, first of all, Steve, where the launch is, I guess. Um, some manufacturers would um, cover your hotels. They would cover your your food um, during the launch um, if it required a stay. Um, so, yeah, if you're a, a freelance journalist like, well, all of us are, um, then you would have to cover the cost of the flight yourself. Um, and then it just depends on whether... That cost can be uh, overturned by um, getting enough uh, kind of material from the people at the launch, whether it's riders or whether it's team managers, uh, CEOs or sponsors, um, to you know to, to put into articles and then sell on. So, um, I mean, I think from a journalist's point of view, yeah, it's good. There's not a great deal of going on at this time of year. Um, sometimes you hear rumors, things going on, like what uh, we spoke about in the first part of the show. And uh, the team launches are usually the first opportunity you have to come into contact with the, the people in the, the MotoGP realm, um, you know, the, the, the team managers and the engineers and the riders. And it's a good chance to, to talk to them about this. So um, I would say I've never really been to a, uh, a really memorable uh, launch, something that, that took my breath away. But as a kind of um, as a kind of bread and butter um, chance to show up and speak to people that you kind of value their knowledge and intelligence and inside information, um, yeah, then I think they're they're a decent uh, a decent investment to make. Yeah, again, I think it depends very much on what the manufacturer wants to do, whether they want to uh, just completely control the message and that way just use it as a, as a pure like branding and marketing uh, opportunity or also if they want to have um uh, you know, sort of get a head start on the uh, on the news for the coming year. Um, I've been to a few in person ones 
you know, lots of them I've, I've actually just had to pay for myself. You know, I've, I've paid for my own flights, paid for my own hotels. Um, and you just sort of, you know, pop in and it, it's a chance to actually ask a few questions. Usually, uh, the, the things that I found really interesting, useful have been the things that I've learned, um, almost off the record, if you know what I mean. They're like, they're almost not related with the launch of that, uh, of that particular team, but you will, you'll have a little bit of it, it you know, you'll, it's an opportunity to have a chat with someone and to just sort of, you know, general background sort of thing. And, the, and then you'll find out a few little, bits and bobs which you actually find um, are extremely useful going into uh, going into the year or, or put the rest of the news into context sort of thing so yeah i mean they they are they are useful i mean like if i had to choose between a launch and a test it's absolutely no contest because i love tests um uh, but I, I i think you learn an awful lot but there are it is a more relaxed point at which you can talk to people I like the fact that Dave's compared a launch to a test to see which he'd prefer. Dave, if you were left with the option between a race weekend and a test, you'd be taking a test every day of the week as well. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Probably yeah, not, no, not the comparison we need here in, in a discussion about launches. But Adam, <laughs> just uh, about some of, what, uh, some of what we're talking about there as well. When you look at, David's mentioned there about the fact that at a launch, you get a bit more time with people. It's a bit more personal because at a Grand Prix weekend, there's, let's say, a hundred journalists all trying to grab riders or team managers or engineers at a launch. It's a much more select group, so you get the chance to have dinner with someone, if a couple of beers, you have a chance for people to let their guard down. Not so much let their guard down, but build the trust that you need as a journalist. That's where events like this are really important, just to be able to let you be able to do your job as well. It's not necessarily about the content you create immediately from the event, but what can build from it. Yeah, that's right, Steve. I mean, for any people listening to this who are aspiring journalists, you know, want to try and break into a sport or an industry or whatever, then still one of the most underrated and essential skills for this job is networking. Um, It's making your contacts, it's uh, forging relationships with people. And uh, race events these days that seem to be increasingly more hectic. Um, and then when you're away from the race, people tend to exist in their isolated orbs of social, surrounded by social media, where you can keep, you know, highly informed just from published opinions of other people. Um, I think that skill is something that's a, maybe diminishing a little. I mean, these events, um, you know, the, the, pre- the presential ones uh, allow you to get there to talk to you know fellow journalists to team members to people say from like um you know movie star or uh, monster energy or red bull or wherever it may be um you know and i think there's a value to that i st- i mean they clearly teams still value launches i mean of all the 11 teams in MotoGP, i mean there's five happening before the end of this month um Grassini are doing an event where they want people in attendance ducati like we've mentioned of course gas gas will be doing something quite commemorative um, in Spain at the beginning of March, uh, you know, which is fitting because it's a brand new brand and a very kind of Iberian brand coming to a sport where as which has its heart and kind of soul, I guess you could say in Spain. So it's um, there, there is there is value to it. I want to put you guys on the spot right now. What are the best and worst launches that you've ever been to? 
I'm going to kick that straight off, Neil, by saying that the best launch I went to was the 2015 LCR launch in London. And the worst launch I went to was the 2015 LCR <laughs> launch in London. And it was for the exact same reason for both of them. The launch was in a middle of like a swanky London nightclub bar kind of thing. And it was when they had the CWM sponsorship. And there was big questions being asked about that sponsorship. And then we arrived into like what could only be described as something you'd imagine from the the marketing team at Mad Men or something like that. If there had been a big bowl in the corner with something in it, you wouldn't have been surprised. It was just drinks and God knows what being handed out. And it made it an incredibly memorable launch for both good and bad reasons. But I would say that they ticked the boxes of any time I think of a launch, I think of that night. So it was a, certainly a memorable launch. Dave, how about yeah. you? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, um, let's see, uh, I suppose the least memorable ones or the worst ones are just the ones which, the, which sort of like happen online. And uh, I seem to remember Yamaha did it online one year and it was it was just... The virtual garage year, Dave, yeah. the virtual the garage year. That was, that was very, very bizarre indeed. Um, PlayStation 2 uh, graphics set. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Yes, it was very metaverse, but um, uh, ahead of its know, time is what you're saying, Dave. Sorry, ahead of its time. Ahead of its, yes, saying. very much, very much ahead of his time. It was very, very 2045. Um, uh, the best one, I don't know. I mean, like I was, uh, I missed out on the original Vroom uh, Ducati launches. The first Ducati launch that I got invited to was 2013 after they got bought out by Audi. Um, but that was at Munich and we got to visit the Audi factory, um, which was really interesting. I mean, you know, if you ever get a chance to, to visit like a, a, a motorcycle, the Ducati tour, for example, is great. Um, uh, but we got, we got a tour around the Audi factory and watched them put together cars. Uh, and I think found that very very interesting but then we also had to sit in on the presentation of the uh of the of the board to its shareholders and that was very much not interesting whatsoever so um yeah i mean it was it, it was a bit odd that one sort of thing i've been to a, a quite a lot in in fact to be honest i've been to a fair number of ducati launches in bologna uh, most of which I paid for myself. And the most memorable thing about them is having a, you know, walk around Bologna because it's a beautiful city and then eating fantastic food in the evenings, uh, uh, in the evenings there. That's actually one of the things that I always quite enjoyed about Provax launches whenever they'd hand them, have them in Barcelona because they've had it in a, in a, in an old theater around the corner from one of your old flats, Neil. They've, had them in different locations around the city. And it's actually quite cool just to be able to go to a cool city. And, you know, you go and you get your day's work done and then you've got, you know, a couple of days maybe where you're just spending time in the city and able to take in the sights. And that's always a fun one. But uh, Adam, sorry, just to, I jumped in ahead of you there. No, I have it. for me, Steve, it's hard to think of any bad ones. I mean, the events you've been at where you've been incredibly bored or you thought, well, actually, there's no purpose to me being here whatsoever. You tend to erase quite quickly from memory. Um, the ones <laughs> Dave's that, timeshare with the with the Audi board, for instance. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yes. I mean, I do. I was pleased a couple of years ago when Repsol Honda made a big effort to take people to Madrid when Jorge Lorenzo and Mark Marquez were the two riders. I mean, 
we said at the time, I still don't think there's a MotoGP team with two bigger profile riders, two A-list riders together. Um, I think it might, you guys might have to correct me, but I think it might have also been the 25th year for Repsol sponsoring Honda that year. Um, or it may have been a year later, but well, there was significant cause for Honda to, you know, kind of celebrate that team and that union. Um, I thought that event was pretty good. Um, also, it gave an opportunity to interview like Mick Doohan, which is not always possible at, at MotoGP Grand Prix. I didn't think the event was much good, but I did enjoy staying in a flat with Neil and um, spending a couple of days in Madrid because I'd never been to Madrid and Madrid's just an amazing city. I was, uh, I, I really enjoyed that. I also enjoyed when we were all stood around McDoon and Dave tried to ask him more than one question and uh, another journalist tried to ask a question at the same time and he just, he raised his hand at Dave and just with a single finger basically stopped his flow completely <laughs> and was like, no, another, pe- another person speaking, mate. And uh, yeah, obviously Dave went uh, suitably quiet. That was quite fun too. I like the fact that Mick never lost the ability to put a journalist in his place. That's always important to know. <laughs> Well, Madrid was also the venue of another decent one, Steve, which Neil and I went to, was the movie star Yamaha. Um, and, you know, that was quite well done, good production values. And, you know, it gave some pretty decent content because Maverick Vinales and, and Valentino Rossi gave some, you know, like a, a media debrief afterwards. And uh, I think it was the time when Vinales announced a new two-year deal uh, with Yamaha. Um, so you got a little bit of a scoop as well as, you know, having a a reasonably decent event or time in Madrid. So there there are, you know, when people make the effort, it's really quite worthwhile. Yeah, I actually really liked that one just from the outside looking into it because I worked in that building when I was an engineer and it was quite cool to see how it was being used for something a lot more fun than what I did whenever I was based in in Madrid. But um, I thought one of the best launches I went to was actually a bike launch. It was Ducati USA were doing their unveiling of the Penegale Superleggero. And they had the World Superbike riders, I think it was Chaz Davis, and I want to say Marco Melandri that year were the Aruba riders. And the event was held at Pebble Beach, the golf club, and uh, the bikes came down the middle of a fairway, and then there was the the unveiling of the bike. So it was that was quite a memorable one, and it allowed the American journalists to have the chance to talk to all the world superbike riders and uh, team personnel. I think Ernie Maragalli was still, was, was still in charge. And you ended up with um, a, a lot of good content for people that wouldn't get the opportunity, really, to to sit down and talk to those guys. I think the, the big lesson for me from all of these things, because I've been to uh, sort of launches from manufacturers which have been really good and launches with from the same manufacturer would be would been absolutely terrible and there's just no way of knowing what you're going to get you know it could be great it could be terrible um it could be very interesting obviously everyone or a lot of fans want to see the same uh you know the, the new uh livery and then they're always really disappointed to find out that the new livery is almost identical to the old livery only they've moved sort of a graphic about three millimeters up or down or or front or back but um uh, yeah you just i don't think you know what you get you never really know what you're going to get neil just for one question for you where on the scale of launches in moto gp did it fall for you when lcr had their art of moto gp launch last year and there was certain video content from one of the paddock pass podcast hosts it was great yeah, well yeah, well, just when you were 
coming to me to ask what my favorite launch experience was. I mean, clearly it was LCR's launch last year, which was uh, composed by uh, none other than Adam Wheeler. That was uh, just a, a really beautiful, memorable experience. So yeah, um, easily best launch experience for me. Steve, I have to say your favorite launch experience of being on Pebble Beach Golf Course is you talking out of your ass because it's got nothing to do with the riders, nothing exactly. to do with the bike, nothing whatsoever to do with Superbike. Yeah. You were no, thinking of getting out of the bunker on the 17th. Yeah, it, it was a golf course. That was the only thing. I mean, it's yeah, just it's great. <laughs> <laughs> what, what could possibly be, be bad about something like that, except for the fact that they didn't let us play around? But like other than that, it was it was pretty good. And uh, I think that sort of brings us to an end for this week's show as well. And uh, we're going to be pretty busy over the next few weeks in the Paddock Pass podcast. As Adam said, the uh, the three guys are all going to be over at the Vroom uh, launch for Ducati in the coming weeks. There's other launches still happening now in the next few weeks. Yamaha, Grassini and uh, a couple more as well. So we're going to be keeping up to date with that. We're going to be bringing a lot of different content over the course of the next few weeks as well. We've got a show in the pipeline where we're going to look at our favorite events to to cover during the course of the MotoGP season, which racetracks are the ones that are the easy ones to get to, which ones are the fun ones to get to. So we're going to give everyone a, a little bit of a travel show for MotoGP and covering the championship as well in the coming weeks. We'll have obviously the MotoGP launches, myself and Gordo for World Superbikes. We'll be getting everyone up to date on winter testing in the next couple of weeks at Hareth and Portimao. And then obviously enough on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, you can support the podcast by taking out a Patreon subscription. We've got a lot of additional content all the way through the season on Patreon. So over a race weekend or the major tests, we have it where we've got the Paddock Note show getting everyone up to date all the way through the course of a race weekend or a test session. We also have on a Patreon uh, another tier that allows you to get onto a Zoom call with all of us. It's got lots of merchandise as well. It's got uh, mugs, t-shirts hoodies and uh, lots of advantages to being on the top tier to support the paddock pass podcast so for all of us it's a big thank you for listening to this week's show the first moto gp show of 2023 but i think it's fair to say we'll be back all the way through the season with lots of content to get everyone ready for the start of moto gp testing in a month's time this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. The music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Did I say Adam or Andrew? Wait, I was looking at Adam when I'm saying Andrew there. This is going to be really... Look at me! Look at me! Yeah. I apologize. I'm ready now, boys. Jensen, obviously, don't include that part <laughs> <laughs> in the final edit, please. Otherwise, I might be out of a job. Uh, yeah, I will make sure that he has that to be noted for you, Neil, to include that in the outtake.